If you've got your Bibles, um, go with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to continue in our study of Colossians. And we're going to, we're going to, I think we're going to finally get to the end of Colossians 1. We've been in it for a little bit, but Colossians, we're going to look at the ministry of Paul today and, and his, his example that's been set for us in the text. We, we have been shown throughout the scriptures over and over and over again, examples of men and women who have faithfully followed and loved Christ with every fiber of of their beings. We, we've been shown that even though they were sinful people, they had the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that redeemed and reconciled them back to God Himself. And we're shown that the goal of, uh, in ministry, the goal of the ministry of Paul, the goal of ministry for anyone in the text, was to proclaim Christ and Christ crucified. We're shown examples that, that we are to follow Christ the way these men and women did. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul tells us, um, he says that you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. So we're shown these people in the text so that we can know how we are to follow and to imitate Jesus. We're, we're given these examples so that we can know what it looks like to be an actual, a true follower of Christ. And so today I want to continue in our study in Colossians and to look at Paul's ministry to the church. So we're going to start in verse 24. So Colossians chapter 1 and then we're going to be in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. For your sake, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I have become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for the ages and the generations, but now is revealed to all his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone to be mature and to present themselves mature in Christ. For this, I toil, struggling with all his energy. Whose energy is he toiling with? His, he's, he's toiling with Christ's energy, all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. So we've got this picture of Paul. And, and Paul is one of our, the guys that we hold up as one of the most incredible men who ever lived. He loved Christ fervently. He desired to know Christ. He desired to pursue Christ. His one hope was to know Christ above all else. He wanted to know him. Now, Here's the thing. What Paul is doing in this moment for the church is incredible. When you read in the text, he's suffering for the church. He's longing for the church. He's proclaiming Christ for the church. He's, he's doing all these things for the church. 
But, Christ, but Paul was not always toiling on behalf of the church. He was not always a man who longed to know Jesus and to follow him to the death. He was actually in the beginning of all of this. He was actually, um, he's a little bit of a scoundrel. He was a little bit of a, uh, he didn't like Christians in the beginning. He didn't like Jesus at the start of all this. And I want us to remember this. Remember, throughout this whole morning, I want you to remember this. When Jesus enters your equation, when Jesus enters Paul's equation, the answers completely change. When Jesus enters the equation, everything changed. Pre-Jesus, Paul was not a guy that Christians really wanted to have anything to do with. In fact, Christians actively avoided Paul. Christians actually tried to stay away from Paul often. They, they knew that he was trouble. Um, so I want us to look at Acts. I know, I know we're in Colossians, but we're going we're gonna to get back to Colossians. But I want us to do a little bit of history, and I want us to do a little bit of background. So go to Acts. And I'll hear page, I hear a couple pages turning. Let's get, let's get over to Acts. We're going to start in Acts chapter... Acts chapter 7. Actually, you know what? I'm gonna, we're going to go back a little bit further than that. We're going to go Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And we're going to start in verse 7. I know I, know I wanted to, We're going to get to 7. We're going to go 6, 7, 8, 9. We're going we're gonna to get there. But we're going to start in Acts chapter 6. And we're going to be in verse 7. Now, I, I want you to see this because in Acts, the whole, have you ever taken time to read some of the book of Acts? It's the story of the birth of the church. It's the story of how the, the church was, was birthed. It's an incredible story. And I want us to see, we're going to talk about Stephen, because in order to understand who Paul was, he was Saul pre-Jesus. But I want us to understand, you have to know the guy, his name's Stephen. This is sort of kind of where Paul enters the, the story as well. So I want us to see this in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So I want you to see this because there was in this season, the Jewish religious system was, was in charge. They had the temple. They had everything. The Jewish religious system was on top. It was, it was the big thing. It was a political and a religious system that was very powerful. And I want you to see what happens. The gospel is being proclaimed in the book of Acts. And we see in the beginning, of this, there was, at the beginning of Pentecost, there was 3,000 people that got saved in one day. And then all of a sudden, you start seeing the word of God, verse 7, the word of God has continued to be proclaimed, and there is an increase in number. And who's getting saved? Who's getting saved? The priests. So the leadership of this religious system are abandoning the Jewish system and jumping on board with Christianity. Because they understand, oh my goodness, everything in the Old Testament was pointing towards Christ. Wow, okay, the, the light's been turned on. And so then you see this gentleman named Stephen. Stephen steps in, he's, he's, a, he's a disciple, he's, a, he's been... 
um, saved and he is, he is actively involved. In verse 8 it says, And Stephen, being full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the, among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those of Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly intrigued men who said, We heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and, they, and the scribes, and they came upon and seized him and brought him before the council. So what happens here in verse 6? There's an argument that happens. Stephen's preaching the gospel. Men and women are being saved. The, the leadership doesn't like this. They're like, wait a minute, I don't like this. And so they start to debate Stephen. They can't withstand the debate. They can't handle a debate. And in the world in which they lived, it's a lot like the people of today. When we can't debate properly, what do we do? We start to lie and call names and get angry with one another. We can't have a thoughtful dialogue. We start to get angry with one another. We can't have an actual debate. We get angry with one another and they, get, and they go and seize him and they take him before the council. They take him before the court and they get angry. So, so silly. The Jewish leadership is just, they're losing their minds. And they set up false, in verse 13 it says, They set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. Notice what they're doing here. They're, they're placing, they're saying, they're ta- he's talking against the holy place. What's he talking The temple and the religious system. The temple and the religious system. For we have heard him say that the, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and, and, and it will change. Because what? By golly, we can't have change. Change doesn't work. Nobody, anybody in the room like change? <laughs> Nobody likes change. We can't have, we've, we've only done this for years and years and years this way. We can't ever do it differently. Well, these people are a lot like some Baptists. So, come on, lighten up. Come on now. And, and gazing at him, look at this, verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face and it was like the face of an angel. So the Holy Spirit is completely indwelling Stephen. And for the entire chapter 7, this entire chapter 7, he just begins to talk. And he just unpacks throughout the entire chapter the gospel. And he starts talking about the power of God's word and the power of who Jesus is. And then he ends up at the end of it. I want us to see the end of it because I don't want, I'm not going to read the entire chapter because I mean, it's, it's, it's a long chapter, but I want you to understand this entire chapter, he defends himself and he, and he proclaims the gospel to the court, to the council. And, and he ends up there in verse, um, what is it? 50, um, actually 49. Heaven is, he says this, actually verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. So he's, he's attacking the system and he says, listen, this God that I'm talking about, the Jesus I'm talking about, the Most High, he does not dwell in a house made with hands, as the prophet says. 
Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What, what kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? Question mark. And then Stephen looks up and look, listen what he's about to tell these religious people. How would this go if, it, if someone walked in a room like this and said this? You stiff-necked people, you uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. That really goes well, right? <laughs> he got, I mean, he's literally telling these religious people, you're stiff-necked, you don't listen, and you resist God. Wow. Like, that's a big charge. He said, and he continues in verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? So now he's like, now he's calling their dads out. Now your dads, they persecute the prophets. You guys resist the Holy Spirit. You're not doing anything that God's called you to do. You're actually stiff-necked and wicked. Wow. And, so, and, then, he, and then he pronounces, look at this. And they killed those who announced the beforehand of the coming of the righteous one. So now he's not only calling them names. He's like, listen, you're murderers on top of that. You killed righteous people. You killed the prophets. And you are stiff-necked and you're murderers. And you have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep the law. So what he is in essence telling them is that this is what it is. You have put your hope and your faith in a religious system and a building over the God of the universe. And you're blasphemers. How would that go over in this room? If somebody walked in and said, listen, all of you in the room, blasphemers and stiff neck. It's not going to go well, right? No, every, it's a, it, it'd go like you think it would go. Verse 54. And when they heard these things, they entered into a rage and they ground their teeth in. Think, you guys ever, anybody in the room ever been so mad that you ground your teeth? You're just like, Argh. anybody? Pam? Pam's over going, yep, yep, I have. <laughs> Like, they, they ground their teeth in just a rage. They were so mad. But Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with loud voices and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him so they're so mad at this they're here like this is the world in which we live right now when gospel-centered truth is given people are just like that's oh no i don't want to hear that when the people sit here you're a sinner and you need to be repent you need to repent people are like mm, no, i don't want to hear that nope 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 and they cover their ears they do the same exact thing today as they did in, in paul's day and then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid. Now listen. Now enters Paul. Or, I'm sorry, Saul. They laid down their garments at, a, at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, he called to the Lord Jesus, Receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out. Now listen. If I'm in the yard and you all are throwing stones at me and hitting me in the face with rocks... I, I just I hope to God this is my response. If, if people have pulled me out of the out of the building and put me on a, on a yard and start hitting me with stones, I want to I want to hope in my heart that this is how I react. 
Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he said this, and he fell asleep. It means he died. He was stoned. So, Stephen has this righteous moment, and he stands up and he preaches with Holy Ghost power, and the people don't like that Holy Ghost power, and he, they throw him out and they kill him. They kill him. And then you see who, who, who is okaying this? This young man named Saul, verse 8, or chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devote men buried Stephen and made great lamentations. They, they, were sat, they wept over him. They wept, like, this, this brother was murdered. This brother was murdered. And so they're having great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging. Now listen to this. Paul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house. And he dragged off men and women. And committed them to prison. And so we've got, we've got Paul. Well he's, he's Saul. I keep saying Paul. I'm just going to just know that I'm talking about Paul. He approves of the death of Stephen and then he actively engages in ravaging the church. I, look, you know, I just wanted to look up the word and the definition for ravaging and it just means the severe, to cause severe and extensive damage to. Saul had one goal. He had one goal and it was to ravage the church. It was to destroy men and women. It was to murder human beings who loved Jesus. That was his goal. He hated Jesus and he hated the church. Why? Because here's the thing. Everybody, everybody wants to get angry at pre-Jesus Saul. He thought he was doing the right thing. He was his day. Now listen. He was his day's ISIS. He was his day's ISIS. He thought he was doing God's will. Just like Islam, Muslims think that they're doing Allah's will. They think they're doing God's will by killing people. Saul thought the same exact thing. He thought, this, these men, these women, they're blaspheming the holy God of the universe. And I'm not going to stand by and let that happen. So don't, don't poo-poo on Paul. Because Paul was trying to do what he thought was right. But never count God out, amen? amen? Never count God out. So we're, we see throughout all these things happening throughout the text, the, all the ravaging, all the killing, all the destroying of God's people and the church, trying to destroy the church. But what happens to the church is interesting. During persecution and during hard times and during suffering, the church explodes in growth. If you read through chapter 8, Philip meets and goes into and preaches the gospel to, of Christ in Samaria. And men and women are saved. Magicians are, evil magicians are, are changed by the power of the gospel. Philip meets with an Ethiopian eunuch and he gets saved and baptized. And God, like the gospel is being proclaimed and men and women are being saved just wholesale. Just often it's happening. So, 
Even in the midst of suffering, the gospel is preached and we have example after example after example of God's word being proclaimed and men and women being transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. And then we go into chapter 9, Acts 9. We see the conversion of Paul. Like, see how this starts. But Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples. So he's actively talking trash and he's looking for a way to kill Christians. He's actively breathing threats and actively coming after them and murdering them. Now listen, Paul went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogue of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what the Christians were called back in this day was the way, whether men or women, he might be able to bang them up and take them to Jerusalem. So he went on his way and he approached Damascus. So I want you to see how much clout Paul had. Paul had a lot of political capital. Paul had the ability to go before the high priest. It wasn't just, that wasn't, that wasn't something you could just do. You couldn't just walk into the high priest and be like, hey, high priest, I'm here. There was appointments, there are things that you, you couldn't be seen by him unless you had some pull. So Paul has some pull with the high priest. So he gets in and he has this conversation. He says, listen, could you write me a letter to okay me to go in? And if I find any of these Christians, these people following the way, can I get your seal of approval? Can I get your written permission to bind them up, take them to prison? If I have to kill them, I guess I'll just kill them. But can I, can I get your approval? And he gets the high priest's approval to do this. So he's got money. He's got access to money, power, and political capital. Like he can do all these incredible things. He can, he can go after them. And so he's got his crew, he gathers his crew up, and he starts to head out, and he says, okay, I'm going to follow through, I'm going to go do this, I'm going to live my life, I'm going to go take these men out, I'm going to go do what I need to do. So, now, verse 3 in chapter 9, now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now listen to his response. And he said, who are you, Lord? Now, what do you notice about the word Lord? It's capitalized. It's not, if you ever see the word Lord in the text and it's lowercase, he's not talking about a supreme being. Lowercase Lord is just somebody like a king or somebody like that. He says, who are you, Lord, with an uppercase L? So this means that there are some, he understands, this is not someone to be messed with. He says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. Whoa. Think about what just took place. He's actively saying, I can't stand Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is the problem. And I'm going to go stamp out these Christians. I'm going to destroy them. I can't, I can't handle this. I want to see them gone. So he's on his way to Damascus to, to go do this. And Jesus shows up and says, uh, why are you doing this? And Paul's like, um, who in the world are you? And he says, it's me, Jesus, the guy you've been persecuting. And... Saul is completely dumbfounded. How do we know? Because look at the text. It's a, I am Jesus, the one you persecute. 
But rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but they saw no one. So Saul's the only one that could see Jesus. And consequently, this is the reason he can also be called a disciple. Because he had an actual interaction with Jesus. So Jesus, he sees him. He hears him. They have this conversation. Could you imagine walking with Saul? Could you imagine being in that, that crew? And all of a sudden, you hear the voice, but you're like, you don't hear that? I can, I can hear him talking. Where is he coming from? Could you imagine how they're probably freaked out a little bit? But Paul, he rose, verse 8, he rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So Jesus looks at him and says, listen, we're done with this. This isn't happening anymore. He arose from the ground, even though his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate or drank. So for three days, he didn't eat, he didn't drink, he didn't see. Can you imagine how terrifying that would have been? You woke up that morning and you had a plan, you had an agenda. There are some of you, you woke up this morning and you had a plan and you had an agenda and you walked in the room. You may be getting ready to have an encounter with the God of the universe. I'm just going to, that might happen. The God of the universe may show up in your life and say, listen, we're not going to do this anymore. You're not going to pursue that sin anymore. You're not going to live like you were before. I'm taking over. How do we know? Because he, Paul was actively against Jesus. And Jesus says, no, not anymore. You're mine. I'm taking you back. You're done. You're done doing what you've been doing. He took his sight for three days. And he drank and ate nothing. Verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now, this is interesting because we live in a world where people say, I would just love to hear the audible voice of God. I want God, if I would be able to obey better if God could just audibly tell me what to do. This is where I can tell you that we wouldn't obey any better if God talked to us audibly. Because here we've got, listen to this. Anas, An, this Ananias, the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here, I, here am I, Lord. And the Lord said, rise and go into the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarshish named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he, is, he, has, been, and he has, has seen in a vision a man named Ananias to come and lay hands on him so that he might, be, might regain his sight. Now, God just gave this disciple a direct order. said, I need you to get up. I need you to go into the street named Straight. I need you to find this guy from Tarshish named Saul. He's praying. He's asking about me. I need you to go in. I need you to lay hands on him. And I need you to heal him. And Ananias says, yes, Lord, I'd be glad to do that. Let's get right on it. Is that what he says? Oh, wait, no, hold on. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done in to that how much evil that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is my chosen instrument 
to carry out my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and he entered into the house and laying hands on him said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, Brother Saul. Notice He's no longer an enemy of the state in the eyes of Jesus. He is now brother Saul. And the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell off of his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he arose and was baptized and he taking food, he was Straightened up and he was strengthened. Now what happens next? For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus. So what in the world happened to Paul? What in the world happened? Jesus Christ showed up in his life. Anytime Jesus shows up in the life of men and women, they're transformed. Jesus gets in Paul's way on his way to destroy Christians. And Saul shows, Jesus shows up and says, you're mine and I'm going to transform you and I'm going to use you as my instrument and I'm going to show you how to, how to do what you need to do and I'm going to, you're going to proclaim the message of the gospel to men and women, to kings and to the Gentiles. And by the way, I'm going to show you that you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer for this. Could you imagine what that looked like? Could you imagine how terrified Christians would have been? Because Paul had a reputation, didn't he? Paul had a reputation. Can you imagine Paul walking into the room this morning? If, if we were in Jesus' day, gathered and worshiping together, and Saul walks in, everybody in the room is going to be like, uh, uh. Right? Be like, they're coming in with Saul. Sam, you got your gun? What, I mean, come on, where are we at, brother? <laughs> like, we're going to be nervous, right? Yeah. We're going to be nervous. But he's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to spend time with you, and you're going to see that I know Jesus. I love Jesus now. Yes, I was, I was anti-Jesus, but now I've met him, and he's changed my life. He's transformed my heart. He's taken me from a murderer to, I was a, I was a murderer of Christians, but now I'm a Christ follower. Like, that's the power of Jesus. Jesus has the power to take men and women who are murderers, who are adulterers, who are thieves, who are blasphemers, and to transform them into redeemed human beings. Amen? Amen. Like, that should cause us to get a little Pentecostal. I know we're Baptists, but I might get... I'm, I'm, all, I'm fine with running the pews on that one. Good night. Like, like, that should cause us to get excited. Like, Jesus of Nazareth can transform our lives. He sure can. Paul was completely transformed. And when Jesus said, you're going to suffer for my name's sake, uh, this brother suffered. Remember in Colossians chapter 1, I told you we're going to go back there. We're buying. I, I know we're going to take a minute, but remember in Colossians 1, listen to what he says. What, what does Paul say? Colossians 1, 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So who's he suffering on behalf of? The church. He's suffering on behalf of the church and and for Jesus' name. I rejoice in in my sufferings for your sake. And my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. 
for the sake of his body, that, the, of the, that is the church, which I have become a minister according to the stewardship of God that was given to me f- for you to make the word of God fully known. So it's his job. He's like, he's going to suffer. And I'm going to tell you, I want to show you in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Like, I want you to see how rough Paul had it. You think Christians in the world in which we live today have it rough. You think Christians in America, oh, oh man, they don't let us gather. Oh, man, they won't let us. Pr- uh, like, like right now, we're, we're, we're experiencing a little tiny fraction in certain places. Like us gathering like we're gathering. There are people in America that are not allowed to do this right now because of this, th- this virus. We're not, and, and there are people saying, if you, if you gather, you're going to jail. That's, that's, the, that's the mandate. You say, well, that's rough, Caleb. Let's look at Paul real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're starting in verse 24. Five, this is Paul speaking. This is Paul telling you what sufferings he's gone through. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. So we got 39 lashings because they knew after 40 that you die. Like historically, if you look at that, anything over 40 lashes with these, with the cat of nine tails and with the rods and things like that, you're dead. So they, I, I don't know how, I guess they, they experimented like, all right, 39, 40, 40, oh, now he's gone. All right, all right. We can't go that far next time, Chuck. All right. So five times, this is five separate times Paul receives 39 lashes from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. So not only was he beaten with the cat and he was ripped, he was whipped with rods. Once I was stoned. That sounds fun. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day. I was adrift at sea. That sounds like a great time as well. On frequent journeys, in dangers of rivers, dangers of robbers, dangers from my own people. Like, his own folk, like his own people are coming after him, trying to kill him. Anybody in the room ever felt like your own people are coming after you, trying to take you out? Okay. The danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger from the, in the city. Uh, there's dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers. Bro- brothers, people saying, listen, I'm a brother in Christ. I'm a brother in Christ, and I, w- I want what you want. I follow Jesus. And then they ride him out for some rewards. So he's in danger from a false brother. Woo! He keeps going. Then he says what? In toil and in hardship through many sleepless nights, hungering and thirsting, and I'm often without food. I don't have a lot of food. I don't have a lot of these things. In cold and exposure. And apart from all of these things, there is the daily pressure. There is the daily pressure on me and anxiety for all the churches. There's anxiety for all. I, I'm worried about the church. Like Paul was concerned about the church. Paul was concerned about the things that were happening in the church. So he had all these things. Verse 30 says, if I boast, I will boast all the things that have shown my weakness. The God and Father of, the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Atarius was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. So the king is now trying to take Paul out. 
but I was let down by a basket through a window in the wall, and I escaped his hands. So, like, he's got all kinds of things happening. Paul was a Christian murderer, but he moved from being a Christian murderer and said, I'm no longer going to persecute Jesus and his followers. I'm going to be, I've been transformed, and now I'm one of the biggest evangelists of Christ ever to be known. Christ was one of, Paul was one of the biggest evangelists of Christ in the world. And that's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus, Jesus does. Jesus takes sinful men and women and he transforms their hearts into redeemed human beings. He changes our desires. Paul's number one desire was to take Jesus and his followers out. That was his overarching burning desire. He woke up, he thought about it. When he went to bed, he thought about it. While he was eating lunch, he was thinking about how he was going to take them out. Jesus shows up and says, you're mine. I'm going to redeem you. You're mine. And his overarching desire now is when he wakes up, he's like, how can I proclaim Jesus? When he's eating lunch, how can I evangelize? Who can I talk to about Jesus? Who can I share Christ with? What do I need to do? As he went to bed, he prayed, God, give me strength for the next day to let me be able to proclaim and pursue Jesus and to show Jesus off. This is what happened. When Jesus comes into your heart and when he comes into your life, he transforms your desires and he transforms your life. We have all these examples And if you claim to know and love the God of the universe, you claim to know and love Jesus Christ, yet your desires haven't really changed and you don't have a problem with sin and you just let sin run rampant in your heart and in your life, there is a good chance that you need a heart transplant. There is a good chance that you need a divine heart transplant by the the physician of the universe. His name is Jesus Christ. Yeah. Paul said, I want you to imitate me as I imitate Jesus. And I started this out by saying that we have been given example after example after example of people who have followed Christ well. And if, we, if, we, if, if they can do it, if a murderer of Christians can be transformed by the power of the gospel and to become a man after God's own heart to pursue him and want to know him, if he could become a follower of Christ, there's hope for the rest of us. Amen? Amen? And the challenge for us today is this. It's time for some of us to repent. It's, so, it's time for some of us to just say, listen, God, I've been playing games for a long time. I've been playing for a long time with sin. I've been playing a long time with my bitterness. I've been playing a long time with the stuff that I like. And God, it's time for me to get rid of this. It's time for some of us to repent and obey Jesus. It's, it's time. It was time for Paul. And it's time for some of us. Don't shrug your shoulders and say, ah, oh, that's for somebody else to do. That's, Caleb, that's a good sermon. I wish brother so-and-so was here to hear that. No, you probably needed to hear it. You probably needed to hear it. Now is the time to understand that Jesus does love you and that Jesus wants to redeem. Jesus wants to reconcile. But here's what has to happen. You have to understand first and foremost that you're a sinner. You have to understand that you've broken God's law. You have to understand that you are just as nasty as Paul was. I was just as nasty. Pre-Jesus, I was just as bad as Paul. You say, well, Caleb, I've never killed anyone. Jesus internalizes that. 
Jesus internalizes all that. He says, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. If you've, com- if you've lusted after someone, you've committed adultery already in your heart. So thereby, the- anybody in the room ever hated somebody so much that you're like, man, I wish, oh, if I had just five seconds. Anybody? Just checking. Five seconds. I know me. Jesus internalizes that you're a murderer. You need to repent. I've never committed adultery, Caleb. I've never, I've never done well. Have you ever had lust in your heart towards someone? Well, yeah, I have. Well, you've committed adultery. You need to repent. You ever lied? Yeah, all of us in the room have lied. You ever stolen anything? Yeah, you're a thief. These are the commandments of God. God gave us the law in Romans chapter 3 to tell us, to show us, he's a school, the, the law is a schoolmaster to show us that we need Christ and we need to repent and we need to get right with the God of the universe. How does that happen? 1 John 1 9 tells us if we confess our sins, then he's faithful and he's just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Like, that's good news. Like, everything you've ever done wrong, all the murder, all the hate, all the, all the stuff you've ever done in your heart God's willing to forgive that I'll never forget I was in Texas funniest thing in the world because most of the time I'll say anybody in the room ever committed murder and nobody's like well not me I was in Texas and I had a group of guys sitting over at a revival and I was anybody in the room ever committed murder four of them put their hands up and I was like the prison had brought like the guys that had been paroled like they came in and it was I was just like Huh? And I was like, well, let me ask you this. Jesus redeemed you? Like, absolutely. I've repented and Jesus has forgiven me. I was like, hot dog. I got an example now. <laughs> Look at that. Pete for the Lord. I remember the guy's name. Pete. He's on fire for the Lord. And it was just one of those moments I was just like, because we, we all, you know, as long as we see it in the Bible, we're like, well, yeah, yeah, Jesus can do that. But we, if, we've, if we never really know anybody personally, I'm like, wait a minute. I know someone where Christ has redeemed him and he saved him and he's reconciled him. Woo! Come on. Like that should get us excited. Because if Jesus could forgive someone like that, he could forgive someone like me. If he, if he could forgive me, then he could forgive you. But here's the thing that's blocking you. You've got to say, God, I'm done. I'm sorry. Will you please Forgive me.